Well, good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be back with you and an honor to gather with you uh, around the Lord's table. Uh, now, I understand you're in the middle of a series called uh, Character Under Construction. I don't know if you've ever visited a construction site, uh, but they are invariably messy. You have to pick your way through heaps of stones and building materials, avoid large holes, duck under steel girders, swing in the air. And afterwards, you gingerly place mud-covered shoes in the boot of the car and drive home in your sock soles. Construction sites are invariably messy. Sometimes you just have, have to have faith that the construction manager knows what he is doing. And the same principle applies in our lives. The way that God goes about the construction of our characters can seem messy at the time. It is never a pain-free experience. Often he uses hardship to develop us, and that is the subject for today. At the beginning of his first epistle, the Apostle Peter says, Now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In this brief talk, I want to look at two ways that God uses hardship to develop us. First, he trains us to become strong. And second, he prunes us to become fruitful. So to get underway, let's read two short passages from the Bible. First, we'll read from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then over to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews and uh, chapter 2, just two verses, verses 10 and 11 from Hebrews 2. And the author of the, the book of Hebrews says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. There was a horrific story in the newspapers uh, some years ago uh, about a lady who discovered um, a shocking truth about her life as a baby. She had been adopted as a baby uh, by loving parents who had given her a stable and a harmonious upbringing. She had known nothing but love and kindness from them. But when she grew up and got married, her adopted parents decided to tell her the grim story uh, of her adoption. A group of hill walkers had heard the sound of an infant crying, and they eventually discovered a one-year-old baby in the undergrowth. Her little hands had been tied to a bush. I can't even begin to imagine how someone could be so heartless as to abandon a helpless baby, leaving it to die alone. But over the past 300 years, a group of philosophers have performed that heartless action on the entire human race. They taught us that God had left us to our own devices, or maybe he was dead. But for whatever reason, we had been left alone in the universe. 
in the universe of Richard Dawkins. No one hears you scream. We've been abandoned in a universe that regards us with pitiless indifference. So one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian gospel is described in those moving verses that we read in 1 John. We are no longer abandoned orphans. We are the children of God. That is what we are, John says. For young people growing up in a culture that has made them feel rootless and alienated, the idea of being adopted by God, brought into his family, is a truly beautiful idea. It's good that we can each know ourselves as a child of God. But that's only the beginning of the story. We should not be content to live our lives as spiritual babies, addressing our Father with gurgles, cries, and the occasional scream. As Hebrews 2 put it, God the Father's mission is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. In other words, God's not content to have you as one of his children. Like any good father, he wants to develop you into sons and daughters of the Most High. I'm sure you've walked through a country town like Limavady or Cumber, and the town squares in those places still host family businesses. You know, little hardware stores or general purpose shops that have played a central role in the community for generations. They haven't yet been put out of business uh, by the giant retailers like B&Q or Tesco's. And shops like that tend to be called something like McPherson and Sons or McMasters and Sons. Many years ago, Mr. McPherson or Mr. McMaster had started a hardware business. But there came a moment when his eldest son had grown sufficiently to become part of the family business. He was no longer a little child playing hide-and-seek in the back store. He was a grown-up son who understood the family business. So there came a point when the sign on the front of the shop was repainted. It got changed to McPherson and Son. The world to come will have a big sign on its front door. It will read, God and Sons. And in Scripture, Son is the concept of heir, so it is not a gender-specific term. God wants to develop his children into men and women who understand the family business. In other words, God is determined to develop us spiritually to the point where we understand his values and his goals so that we can govern the new heavens and the new earth as grown-ups. It's not God's intention that we spend eternity as gurgling infants. And the first development method is described for us again in the book of Hebrews, but this time in chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. And the verses, we're going to read that now, the verses that are relevant to our discussion are verses 6 to 10, but for context, we'll start at verse 3. So Hebrews 12, starting at verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, 
in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now, if we had just jumped straight into verse 6 and heard about God disciplining, we might instinctively think about a father telling a child off or, or even smacking him if such a politically incorrect idea could even be mentioned. But the context doesn't allow that sort of interpretation. This whole section in Hebrews is dominated by the metaphor of a race. The writer uh, paints this scene of a huge stadium with a cheering crowd who are watching a race take place, and we're urged to run the race set before us with endurance. We're told to strengthen our weak knees. The Lord Jesus is described as our role model, the one who is ahead of us. He has run the race, and he inspires us to follow in his footsteps. Now, I'm speaking theoretically here, of course, but the problem of having to run a race is that it is exhausting. We become weary. And sometimes the road up ahead looks so hard that we get faint-hearted. So the only way anyone can hope to run a race like that is if they train for it. And that brings us to these verses about the Father's discipline. This is the discipline of a boxer skipping for hours under the watchful eye of a coach or the athlete working on a personalized training regime with his mentor. Many years ago, there used to be, it may still be a case, there was a program on television called Total Wipeout. Uh, The basic idea of the program is that people competed competed to finish some sort of assault course. I vaguely remember them jumping across a huge set of, a set of huge red spheres, climbing ropes while avoiding machines designed to throw them off balance, and most of them ended up in the water. Anyway, the Americans apparently have an equivalent program. They call it Ninja Warrior, and the difference between those two titles says a great deal about the American and British psyches. And I remember once watching an episode of American Ninja Warrior. I mean, the sheer strength, the balance and poise of the competitors was astonishing. The obstacle course was unimaginably tough, requiring each competitor to hang from rings and swing across terrifying chasms and leap onto tiny platforms. Now, some of you may know where I'm heading with this story because about five years ago, a lovely video um, popped up on social media. It was of a father and his daughter. Obviously, the little girl, she was only about five years old, loved this Ninja Warrior program. So her dad had constructed an obstacle course for her in the back garden. It was made up from packing cases and tree stumps and a shopping trolley perched on the roof of the garden shed. And you can see the determination in the child's face as she overcomes her nervousness and swings from one tree stump to another. And her dad is acting like the crowd in the TV show, cheering her and encouraging her as she overcomes each obstacle. And finally, the little girl runs up a wooden ramp and hits this gigantic red button. She has completed a perfect round, and she turns to her daddy in triumph and says, I did it, daddy, I did it. Now, what was the father in that video doing? He wasn't just entertaining his daughter. He was preparing her for real life. He had designed an obstacle course, one that was suitably stretching for a five-year-old. Now, she probably got the occasional stealth in her hand, Sometimes she might need a plaster on her knee. But her father was watching over her all the time, making sure she sustained no serious injury. The girl was learning about confidence and taking risk and resilience. Now imagine that in the garden next door, the neighbor's child is lying down, eating a bag of donuts. 
while playing a game on his smartphone that the father bought for him. Which child had the better father? Obviously the one who spent hours constructing the obstacle course. It was because he loved his daughter that he had designed a path that would stretch her and develop her. He wasn't content just to keep his daughter occupied for an hour. He wanted to develop her. And that is the sense in which we should understand the discipline of God. My first point is that God trains us so that we develop strength, strength of character. Life is a tough race. Left on our own, we might grow weak and faint-hearted. But our Father in heaven is dedicated to training us, giving us the discipline that we need to become spiritually resilient. So I'd like you to think over the past few weeks of your life. Maybe someone in work has been nasty to you, or you've experienced unpopularity in school. If we were alone in the universe, problems like that might make us despair. But now think of those problems as an obstacle course in the back garden. And God the Father is willing you on. He has designed these challenges so that you can learn skills that you will need later in life and in the world to come. He claps in appreciation when he sees his daughter treat her nasty work colleague with grace and fairness. He says a quiet well done when he sees his teenage son handle unpopularity with dignity and strength. He is disciplining you, developing you into a son or daughter of the Most High. Of course, as life progresses, God sometimes asks us to face horrible obstacles. In a fallen world, one full of evil and pain, terrible events can come into our lives. Now, God is not the author of that evil, but in his wisdom, he has prepared us to face them. Maybe your parents are getting divorced, or you've been betrayed by someone you love. Perhaps you struggle with the loneliness of a single life, or the disappointment of a marriage without children. Life has every reason to make you feel weary and faint-hearted. These aren't little obstacle courses in the back garden. These are the real tests of faith that come to us in a fallen world. But God knew they would come to you. And so in the past, he taught you lessons to prepare you for this moment. In the smaller tests of life, you learn to trust your Father in heaven. You learn the wisdom to see your suffering in the context of hope and glory. And so you do not grow weary or lose heart. I mean, think of the man called Daniel in the Old Testament. There came a day when he had to stand up against the power of a despotic pagan king. His very life was at stake. Now, how had he developed the strength of character to face that challenge and to pray publicly with the windows of his room open? Well, very early on in his life, God had built an obstacle course in the back garden for him. It was a little test over eating food that had been offered to idols. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 1. Now, maybe it wasn't a huge thing, but Daniel learned a lesson. He got to hit the big red button when he passed that little test. He had experienced God's discipline in his life, and so he was prepared for the bigger tests that lay up ahead. And the amazing thing is that God even used those terrible tests of later life to develop Daniel, and he will do the same for you. Now let me stress this again. God is not the author of evil in your life, but he can use even your darkest trial to develop qualities within you that will shine for all eternity. God is training you, bringing sons and daughters to glory. So that was our first point. For my second point, let's now read from John chapter 15. This is the upper room discourse. John 15, verses 1 and 2. 
I am the truth, verses 22 to 26. Sorry, I beg your pardon, beg your pardon, one to two. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And then back to Genesis, the book of Genesis, and chapter 49. Genesis 49, starting at verse 22. This is the ancient Jacob blessing his sons, and he's now going to talk about Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed supple. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers." In the famous words of John 15, the Lord describes himself as a vine. We are like the branches of the vine. So the resources of Christ flow into our lives, giving us the life we need to produce spiritual fruit. So that's the work of the second person of the Trinity. But the work of God the Father, in the Lord's words, the the first person of the Trinity, is to act like the gardener or the vine dresser, to be exact. There are two processes described in the verses we read together. God the Father casts off those aspects of Christendom that are not part of the true church. But in the life of the individual believer, there is this process called pruning. Now, I know nothing about gardening. If I I can ever summon up the energy to move house, I intend to buy a house which has no garden whatsoever. But I am conscious that many of you derive enormous pleasure from gardening. Perhaps you spend hours designing your garden, tending it, caring for it. And so you will be familiar with the process of pruning a plant. Pruning is the work of God the Father. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit, says the Lord Jesus. Now, here's the thing. To a gardening ignoramus like me, the process of pruning just looks like an act of vandalism. In fact, it looks brutal. What possible good can it do to cut off a perfectly healthy inoffensive branch from a plant. Well, if I attempted to prune a plant, I would, in fact, simply vandalize it. But those of you who understand plants and who love them know what you're doing. With great skill, you know how to encourage a plant to be fruitful, to prevent it from expending all its energies and resources on fruitless growth, and instead direct its energies in the right direction. At the moment of pruning, the process can look like senseless vandalism. It's only with hindsight that the gardener's wisdom can be seen. Uh, for my first point, we, we use Daniel as a case study, and from this point I want to consider Joseph. At the end of his life, Joseph's father calls him a fruitful boy, and we read all the blessings that would flow into human history through the life of Joseph. I don't wish to be overly dramatic, but Joseph saved the world. He did. He used the disaster of a famine to build the ancient culture of Egypt, starting a process of civilization that we enjoy today. But when you read about Joseph's life, it looks as if God vandalizes it every so often. Joseph was a good and innocent young man, 
but suddenly he's sold into slavery. Just as he recovers from that and establishes himself in the household of Potiphar, he's hit over the head again. His life in Potiphar's life is cut off and he ends up in prison. And Joseph overcomes that difficulty and ends up running the prison. He gets filled with hope at the prospect of being released. But that hope, once again, gets cruelly cut down. And it's only later in life that these apparently random acts of vandalism start to make sense. We see the careful action of the divine gardener pruning Joseph's life so that he becomes a fruitful boy. Now, think what would have happened if Joseph had not been sold into slavery. Well, he would have lived a good, nice life in Canaan, uh, but he would never have changed history. Or think about what might have happened if he hadn't experienced the injustice of being thrown into prison. He would have lived out his days as a good servant in Potiphar's household. But it took the prison experience and the disappointments he experienced there to bring him to Pharaoh's attention. The divine gardener knew what he was doing with Joseph's life. I had coffee with a man some time ago. He talked about a time in his life when he failed to get a promotion in work. He had been doing very well in his profession. But for some reason, he failed to get an expected promotion. And that moment cut down something in his life. It wasn't a bad thing. And he felt his loss really keenly for quite a while. But years later, looking back on it, my friend told me that he ended up having a much more varied and interesting and enjoyable career than the one he had dreamed of when he thought that the only way was up. Pruning is not the business of snipping out bad and rotten things in our lives. Pruning involves cutting away perfectly good and unobjectionable activities that will unfortunately not lead to spiritual fruit in the long term. And only God has the skill and knowledge to perform that pruning task on each of us as individuals. And at times, it might seem brutal. Whole aspects of the good life might have been cut away from us. Perhaps you're single, and you wonder why you have not been allowed to enjoy the lovely blessings that flow from a happy marriage. Or maybe you had the vision of a quiver full of children, and that hasn't happened. You sometimes can't help looking over your shoulder at others who seem to sail through life without any disappointment or pain. Well, there are two ways of looking at your life. You can either believe in a divine vandal who has mercilessly robbed you of something for absolutely no reason, or you can sense the work of the divine gardener at work in your life. You aren't being punished for anything. This isn't about judgment or anything like that. It's about the really long-term game plan of becoming a fruitful bar. Now, I know this can be really hard, and it can seem so unfair. It's not that you were chasing some wicked or selfish ambition. Your hopes were good and reasonable. The big question is, does God know what he is doing with your life? When we're young, we think faith is trusting in God's love and his power. But when you get older, you realize it's about trusting in his wisdom. Is he competent with your life? Think of a rose bush after the gardener has pruned it. It looks damaged and exposed. The gardener walks away, leaving a plant with raw wounds alone in the twilight. A bitter wind attacks its damaged branches. Can we seriously believe that the gardener cares for the plant? What possible good could come from all this pruning? But come back in a few weeks or months, and you will see a plant groaning under the weight of its own fruitfulness. 
Having been pruned, the plant directs all its energies into the business of producing fruit. And at that point, we see that the gardener did care for the plant. He had its best interests at heart all along, and so with you. God knows what he is doing with your life. Remember, he is your father. He is determined to develop you into a daughter or a son of the Most High. He isn't content for you to be a mere infant. He wants to produce fruit that will last for all eternity. Joseph's father, when he thought over his son's life, said, The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. But it took all that pain to develop a man who changed this world and who will have such responsibility in the world to come. I think you get a hint of the eternal blessings that will flow from Joseph's pruning in in Genesis. Did you notice Jacob describes Joseph as a fruitful boy? a fruitful bough by a spring. But he has this curious phrase, his branches run over the wall. Your fruitfulness isn't just for this life. It will spill over the wall of death into the eternal kingdom. And I want to close by reflecting on our topic from that eternal perspective. Let's imagine two professing believers, one we shall call Bert and the other Ernie. Bert lives a life in communion with God. He is faithful in prayer. He studies the scriptures. He works hard in various ministries in his church, and over the years, his character develops. So at the end of his life, Bert is a kind, big-hearted, self-controlled, and wise old man. Ernie, on the other hand, relies on a childhood profession of faith. He attends church reasonably often, but his goals are entirely materialistic. He seems to value money and power more than moral qualities. At the end of his life, Ernie is a bitter old miser with a bad temper. But so what? We started this whole study off reading from 1 John, verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, which says, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Now, if Bert and Ernie both have some sort of magic wand wave over them after they die, did Bert's faithful service do him any good? In Galatians 6, Paul is writing to believers. You need to understand this. He's writing to believers, and he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. That's not talking about hell. It's talking about the destruction of a personality. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Well, let's imagine, for reasons I can't begin to imagine, God asks a farmer to plant a field of barley. But in a moment of willful rebellion, the farmer plants a field of wheat. Well, in due time, the crop grows up. The farmer stands looking at what he's done. He repents before God for having disobeyed such a clear command. And of course, the Lord will forgive him, as he does any truly penitent sinner. But here's the thing. There's still a whacking great field of wheat outside his front door. True believers are always promised protection from the penalty of sin, but we are never promised protection from the consequences of sin. If you are a true believer, then you will never face the wrath of God for your sin. But nowhere in Scripture is a true believer promised protection from the consequences of sin. A man reaps what he sows, says Paul. You see, a lot of evangelicals think that at the return of Christ, God will wave some sort of magic wand and will all suddenly turn into clones of Christ. Somehow all our characters will be identically and fully like Jesus Christ. Now, if that were true, what motivation would I have to make progress in this life, to construct my character? Why should I bother if we'll all be identical clones in the long run? 
Well, I want you to listen to some chilling words from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. Paul is talking about how Christians should build their lives on the foundation of Christ, and he says this, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss and yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. If I had to ask you to think of someone who escaped by the skin of his teeth, if you like, who just escaped from the flames, I suspect all of us would think of Abraham's nephew Lot, who was dragged out of Sodom just as the fire of God's judgment fell. And I think Lot is in Paul's mind as he writes these verses in 1 Corinthians 3. Lot himself was saved, but he got to safety by the skin of his teeth. All the stuff he had worked for in Sodom got burned up. So Paul says, if I have built my life with, down here with wood, hay, and straw, that won't survive my judgment. I myself may be saved, but I'll have built nothing that lasts for the eternal kingdom. We shall all be like Christ. What is left of us? There will be different sizes of personality in heaven. All believers will be like Christ. But if you like, not all of us will be the same size. Not all will have the same responsibilities. Only that which is produced by faith, only the characteristics built from that precious and costly material will last in the eternal kingdom. Now, of course, every true believer will get into heaven, but some will be like Lot, getting in like one escaping from the flames. Remember, heaven isn't just about entering a place. It's about entering into an experience, into activity, our enjoyment, our level of responsibility, These things are dependent on the qualities we have developed in our personalities. Professor David Gooding used to give the analogy of a birthday party. There is a baby with a soup spoon spreading cream on his head. Then there's a nine-year-old boy playing on the floor with trains. A sweet 17-year-old girl in her best dress, full of excitement because she's found out there's more to life than trends. Mum and Dad enjoy the party at an even deeper level. By loving for so many years learning self-discipline and selflessness. They have the capacities to find joy and meaning at an altogether more profound level than the baby. All these characters are at the party, but some have the ability to enjoy it at a deeper level than others. So remember that picture of Joseph's character, like a fruitful bough spilling over the wall. The development of our character has eternal consequences. So... You may want to reflect on our two teaching points in that light. May God give us the wisdom to see how he uses hardship to develop our characters. God trains us to become strong, and he prunes us to become fruitful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you above all that we are not alone in this universe at the mercy of forces too dumb even to know that we exist. But we each can say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we thank you that you care enough about us. You take us seriously enough to develop us into sons and daughters of the Most High. But Father, sometimes you call us to go through experiences in life that are hard. And we pray for any in this room who are in the middle of a trial. Oh, Lord, give them 
courage and wisdom. Wisdom to understand. Wisdom to trust that you know what you're doing. So that they can view their present circumstances in the context of hope and glory. That they see that these light and momentary troubles are incomparable to the weight of glory that we will receive in eternity. Help all of us to view our lives in that great trajectory. Not to live as practical atheists, but to see that even in the chaos of the building site that is our lives, that the construction manager knows what he's doing. Help us to go through these trials so that we become strong and fruitful. We ask this in Jesus' name, giving you thanks. Amen.